have a collect call from an inmate at the Washington Correctional Center. To accept the call, press 5. There's nothing like waking up to the sound of clacking and buzzing as the doors crack in the morning after count clears. Waking up to the reality of life in prison. For some, it is just a stop along their journey, a milepost, an experience. For others, it is a revolving door, in and out, in and out, and that's their way of life, stuck in the cycle, pulling and eating away at them. And then for some, it becomes their destination as the hammer came down and that judge issued them a death sentence. The slow way, by way of life in prison. This is the life of a lifer by Taylor Conley. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are graced with the presence of greatness. Today we have our good friend on here, Caleb Twidwell, recording artist and music sensation, who just recently dropped his first single, To Fall in Love Again, and also recorded on Design Convictions track, Walk the Line, and the up-and-coming single that's about to be released, so cold and others to follow. Caleb is a man who has been on a journey throughout his life. He's been through the struggles and he is working to overcome them and triumph. So please welcome my good friend, Mr. Caleb Twidwell. How are you doing today, man? Hey, good afternoon. I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. I uh, appreciate you having me. Thank you. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's good to hear from you. So, hey, man, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your story, man. Where do you come from? Who is this guy, Caleb Twidwell? I think the people want to know. Oh, thanks. Well, that's a pretty simple story. Uh, I come from Shelton, Washington, and uh, my mom is, she's a sweetheart. We, uh, we got a very, very strong musical family. You know, my grandpa Bob, he was a professional wrestler back in his day and he was called the Lumberjack Bob Beasley and he also sang with you know, the Jordanaires, which is Elvis Presley's back of singers and um, you know, played with the Gatlin brothers and had some fun. There's some there's fifty fifties recording artists, you know, Buddy Knox who's a good friend of ours and so we we have some history there. Um myself though you know, my story started, you know, basically at a young age. I was 14 years old, and I remember I had a buddy in school that wanted to go hunting and fishing. You know, we were talking about it you know, during the weekend, and he wasn't available until Monday. And I remember my grandpa had this old pistol in his barn, and it was in a leather bowling bag pouch, and uh, it was a broken so, you know, it was considered a decommissioned firearm. I it just doesn't work, you know. So, but anyway, I, in my mind, I was 14, and I was going to 
pretend like it worked and you know, I wanted to be the cool guy, you know, and like, you know, show up and, and have this and pretend like we're out there hunting. We weren't going to shoot anything, but we were definitely going to have it. And, and I was going to feel cool and like I was, you know, I was the man. So I brought that pistol and I took a fishing pole that I had that pulled it up into a little six inch rod, you know, so I folded my fishing pole up and, and, uh, put in my backpack and I was dressed for the day. I had my clothes, uh, dressed for going out and, uh, yeah, anyway, before first period, we got to school and we smoked some pot <laughs> before first period, you know, and I remember the teacher, she smelled weed on us and next thing you know, the principal came in and, and asked me to come with them. So I got up and went to the principal's office and he sat me down and asked me if I had anything illegal on me, and he bowed my head, and I said, yes, I do, and I told him I had my grandpa's gun. And so he, I remember the principal got up and closed the blinds, and, and he grabbed the rag, and he reached in, and he pulled out the pistol with the rag, and he it on the counter. I remember it was very dramatic, um, because, again, I just grabbed it and was going to go out and play after school. It was not like I... You know, brought a gun to school to threaten anybody or do anything crazy. It was just a stupid choice, you know. And so, basically, what ended up happening after that was, um, you know, the cops showed up and I went to juvie. And I remember that I stayed there. They sentenced me to a month in juvie and they gave me three and a half years probation. And the judge suspended me from every school in Washington for three and a half years as well. So from that point on, I was in juvie, and as soon as I got out, there was no structure for me. Uh, there was absolutely no structure. My mom was just recovering from cancer. She had this rare cancer and literally had her entire nose removed from her face, and they made a plastic surgery nose for her and stuff. But, you know, while this was all going on, you know, my life, and so, you know, my life was still happening, and so... That's that's where it all started. So I was 14 years old, and I was expelled from every school in Washington, and I was on probation for three and a half years during that time. So that entire time, I didn't have a social life. You know, I didn't have uh, friends to go and hang out with necessarily, nor did I really want them at that very moment in time. You know, I just focused solely on hunting and fishing and, uh, you know, family outings and stuff like that but then again you know my family was very dysfunctional so um you know life was hard it was very rough and then you know shortly after that i remember there was a thanksgiving and uh, my parents went to a family thanksgiving and my brother and i stayed home we were being honored you know and they got back and my stepdad was really drunk and next thing you know my brother and my parents are all fighting and long story short i remember you know my you know, everybody was running around. But at the end of the night, everything was said and done. I ended up getting an unlawful imprisonment on my stepdad and, and assault three, and, and it was just really rough. So then I started doing I did four and a half months in juvie for that. And, and that was when I was 17. And finally I got out of juvie. And uh, and that was really rough, too. It was like it wasn't even my deal. The whole fight and argument between everybody that night had nothing to really even do with me. Somehow I got sucked into it and police support came out to where, you know, like, uh, because my, I remember my stepdad, he was trying to drive away and I stepped behind the car door while it was open and, 
and basically they considered that unlawful imprisonment. I was trying to keep him from driving. It was a long story, really long story, and it was crazy. But, you know, we all love each other very much. You know, of course, that was all said and done. And as the years went by, we all, of course, kissed and made up. But that was that. But shortly after there, it was like I turned 18. And I remember I was at a garage sale with my girlfriend at the time. Her name was Whitney. And I bought this 22 short nine-shot revolver pistol from a garage sale. It was for 50 bucks. And I thought it was a cool little piece, and I bought that. And, again, I never have guns because I'm a thug or a gangster or anything like that. The only reason in the world why I would ever have a firearm or a gun was simply because I like target practice or I like hunting, you know, planking, whatever. So, you know, I just got off of probation and uh, just turned 18. I'm driving. I got my seatbelt on wrong and the police officer pulled me over and, and so that was the start of my adult career you know as a as a mess up you know so there it was I got thrown in possession of a firearm and I got possession of a controlled substance which was a, an ounce of weed and and uh you know driving without a license and so I spent nine months in jail and and then I got out and you know life happened for a while and then shortly after that I remember there was this officer and, um, you know, I won't say any names, you know, but this officer, he ended up resigning from the force. Uh, he, there was this guy I knew, his name was Stevie, and he ended up getting beat by this officer, and, and uh, his face was reconstructed, and, and he settled out. He had a lawsuit against the, you know, the force, and so he settled on a lawsuit, and the officer resigned. So, but that same officer knew me from prior instance from this instance I'm about to tell you. I remember I had this 1976 Mach 2 Mustang and uh, sorry I'm going on forever but you know I'm just filling in on uh, you know important chunks of my life. So I had this Mach 2 Mustang uh, and I'm driving up the hill and I remember this officer he saw me going past so he turned around and he looked on his lights and I remember Uncle Bob is a deputy. He told me I have up to five miles to find a suitable place to, to park, you know, if I don't feel comfortable, if it doesn't feel safe. He got up to so much, you know, for them to follow you and for you to find a place to park. So I did that. Rolled down my window, and I followed all traffic laws, and I waved them on to follow me. And I found a place to park. Well, he, I, I parked my vehicle, and he whips his car right in front of mine, and he pulls his gun out, and he draws it, and he tells me to put my hand on the steering wheel and not to move. He doesn't ask me for my license registration. He doesn't do any of that. He figures he knows it all. So he pulls his, his pistol and he's aiming at me. He's telling me to put my hands on the steering wheel and not to move. He comes up to the window and I remember I had a pipe. I had, uh, I had a weed pipe between, you know, my seats by the, you know, by the, the e-brake. And I remember I, I reached down to grab it and toss it out the window. And, uh, as soon as I did that, the officer, punched me. He reached into my window. I remember he punched me and he grabbed me by my head with his left hand. He started ripping my head around by the hair. And my passenger, I had a passenger with really long hair. He, his name was Johnny. Anyway, he got out and he's running down the road and my passenger door is wide open. And I remember this cop's yanking my head around. He's got my hair and I spun in my seat and I kicked off of my door and propelled off of both my seats and landed on my ass outside of the car. And I remember I hopped up and I got this cop coming around and he's got this taser in his hand and he told me to stop. And by that point, by that time, I, I hit it. You know, I was running as fast as I could down the road. 
there's all these really, really big rednecks are looking at me, and I'm, I'm screaming at them. I, I was like, uh, police brutality, you know. I was like, don't, don't, uh, don't interfere. Trust me, this guy's crazy. And I'm running. And so these people let me go. And long story short, I get away. I get away, and uh, I end up in this abandoned house. And I think what ended up happening was these people told on me that knew me. Um, this girl, she was, she was a drug addict, and, and anyway, at the time, I wasn't so hot myself, so. Anyway, uh, she told the cops who I was, and and I remember there's five cops. Uh, they sent in a dog, and I got nipped by a dog. But I remember I laid. I, I remember I was at the door, and I said, I'm so sorry. I was yelling through the door. I said, this is a misunderstanding. I never meant to do anything wrong. And they pushed the door down. And I remember I, I jumped and landed on my stomach, and I put my hands down my back, and it wasn't enough. Police officers were jumping on me. They were putting their knees in my neck. They were putting their knees in my back. They were punching me. Uh, they were chasing me in my back. I remember they handcuffed my ankles, they handcuffed my wrists, and they connected those handcuffs behind me, and they were chasing me and beating me while I was handcuffed. And I remember these four officers, you know, one on my left front, one on my left, right front, back left, back right. They were each, all four of them were holding me by an arm. You know, so they were literally just carrying me out of there by my wrists and ankles, cuffed, and I was screaming, and uh, it was very, very traumatic, and I remember the ambulance came there, and the entire town, it seemed like, was involved, and everybody was around, I was screaming at the top of my lungs, these guys were beating me, and it was just very traumatic, and I remember they had the handcuffs behind me, they took my ankle cuffs off, and they put me in a gurney. And I remember they kept my cuffs on underneath my body. And that was the most horrific experience I ever, ever went through. I remember they strapped me down so tight on this gurney and I had my hands in handcuffs underneath my body weight. And, uh, they took me up to the hospital and they kept me like that for at least an hour and a half and I was begging them to let me out. But the cop otter was telling the nurses that, you know, I had assaulted them. So in the police report, the cop said that I'd punched him and kicked his radio off of his chest and, and that I assaulted him. But in reality, you know, he pulled his gun on me when he pulled me over and he punched me in my face and ripped me by my hair and chased me. And I got away and he ended up finding me and five of his cronies, I mean, he's telling these other officers what I supposedly did. So they're pissed off. And let me tell you, it was not fun, dude. I got beat on pretty hard and I got an assault on a law enforcement officer, you know, and so I did another nine months for that. And, uh, you know, at that moment in time, I decided that, you know, uh, I was just really, really screwing up. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And it wasn't as if I was out there, you know, just doing things and getting in trouble. No, it was, it was like I was, I put myself in a situation, so I was put in a situation where, Unfortunately, you know, it just didn't work out the best for me. And so, you know, that's, and it's so funny, you know, now I have the support of my, my hometown. I have these jailers all know me now in, in Mason County. And I talked with one in particular, I won't say his name, but again, like I have the entire support of these officers. They have known me since I was 18 years old and have seen exactly what I've been going through and how I've changed and that's the most important thing is the change you know when someone decides for themselves 
that what they're doing is not working, or they just decide, you know, to do, do something different, you know. you got to do something different to get different results. And uh, I remember the last thing that I ever did before I changed my life was I got in a big fight in an argument with my mom's brother, my Uncle Sam, and my mom's sister, my Aunt Amber's boyfriend, his name's John Osmond. Well, uh, my mom told me that my Aunt Amber was wondering about me and was wanting me to come over and see him, which she had just gotten a prescription of painkillers. And so I, I went over there, and I was, hmm, I just went to Walmart right before that, and I got this uh, BB gun pistol. It's uh, They look real. They're all metal. It looks completely real. I don't remember what kind of it was. It was a revolver, uh, pellet-gun, pistol, BB gun, and I got that, and I brought it, because I was going to trade my aunt for some pills at the time, you know, I was, uh, it was a little rough around the edges, you know, so, but I brought that, and I was going to trade it to her, well, John come out, and he starts screaming and asking me what the hell I'm doing there, and, and just wigging out on me, and so, I remember I grabbed my gun, and, and I got the barrel, po- it's facing, it's pointing at the ground, and it's facing backwards, so I'm holding my gun backwards, you know, butt facing out, and, um, I remember, you know, John, you know, threatening to call the cops on me and all that, and, and I yelled at him and told him, you know, he's a uh, COS, and, you know, I was freaking out on him, and I, and I told him, I said, you're lucky I don't fucking kill you. But when I said that, I didn't literally mean that I would kill him. I meant, you know, you're lucky I don't beat your ass. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a fucking dude, I'm fucking kill you. You know, but not literally. You know, when I, when I said that at the time, it meant, you know, like, I will I'm going to stomp you, but you know what I mean? And so, but they were so offended by everything. They, they called the cops and told the cops that I drew a gun on them and threatened to kill them and I wouldn't leave. And, and you know, God knows that's not true. And the cool thing about it is now that time's gone by and my Uncle Sam is seeing all the progress that I've made, you know, since that's all happened. And, and I'll get back to all that, to how I went to prison and everything, but you know, and the cool thing is, is at this very point in time now, they're finally willing to admit what really happened and how they screwed up, you know. And But at the same time, had I not been doing what I was doing, I wouldn't have been in that situation. So they ended up charging me with first degree, you know, what, first degree burglary, first degree assault, interference with a 911 call, all these really trumped up charges. And none of it was true. And I remember, but I was so strung out. And I was just really, really, really messed up on drugs. And and I remember talking to my attorney, and my attorney said that, you know, if they show up for trial and stick to their story, it's not going to look good for anybody. And I knew they wouldn't, though, because it wasn't true. It was just a freaking total lie. It was all fabricated. Uh, so, you know, I had to dwell on that for a while. And then I got in this fight, and I ended up in the hole. I beat this guy up over some crazy shit and I went to the hole and and the sergeant was going to make me stay there until I went to prison or until I got out so I remember my attorney came to me and said that they have a deal for me two counts of residential burglary because remaining unlawfully in a residence or a dwelling with the intent to commit a crime is considered residential burglary in the state of Washington so and then two counts of felony harassment threat to kill and so I decided I was going to take that deal not because I was guilty or not because I was scared, but because I needed it. And the beauty about this is it's on record that 
when the judge asked me if I had anything to say before sentencing, I did. I stood up and I said, Your Honor, if you were to let me out right now, I would go back to doing the exact same thing that I've been doing up until this point. I'm going to take this as an opportunity to change my life and to better myself. And I'm never coming back ever again. And it's even more beautifully put and said than that. And the, and the cool thing about it is it's on record. So I'm sure we can dig that up when the time comes for, for anything down the road. But from that moment on, when I went to prison, I made a choice to change my life. It hasn't been easy since I've been out, but the moment I stepped in and I started doing that time, it opened my eyes to a whole other level of life, and I just did not understand at all what I was doing or dealing with. And, you know, I realized that the life I was living was not the life that I wanted. And from there on out, I, I remember my first celly. <laughs> I Again, I won't say names, but... I remember he was, he was, uh, he was younger and, uh, he was older than me, but anyway, he was very established and very political. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I had a lot of respect when I went to prison because of my brother. My brother, his name is Cameron Beasley and, you know, he robbed some banks when he was younger and did some time. And unfortunately, when you go to prison, a lot of the times you have to earn your respect, you know, and, Cameron did just that. And so it made life fairly easy for me because of that. I was known, you know, primarily to a lot of people as his brother and was left to my own. So that was that was good for me. And, uh, you know, I remember when I got in there, I got a celly. I met this old guy. He had a guitar. And uh, I moved into a cell. He let me play his guitar whenever I wanted. And I'd sit there and, and play on it, you know. And then there was this huge thing that the first thing I ever saw in prison that was violent. This guy got really stomped out and I remember I stood up and was reading my letter. It looked like I was blocking the fight so they uh, they wrote me up with a 633 and gave me an assault and they closed me out and they put me into they shipped me out to Walla Walla and that's when I went to the close custody there and and uh, well that was fun. I'll never forget being at the, com the West Complex, you know, and the hole there is just so old. And, and uh, just knowing that you're in the same hole as Gary Ridgway or, you know, some of those people was, well, that was one hell of a, one hell of a ride, man. It was a total mind, mind, you know, it was a mind screw. It was, and then, you know, from Walla Walla, you know, we had a separate tea and I got sent out to Fallen Bay. So, and that's when I met you. I went to Clallam Bay Clothes. I went from the West Complex G unit, and then I got shipped out to Clallam Bay Clothes. And that's when I ended up seeing my brother was there. And, uh, and I, you know, I worked uh, on clothes custody. I was there for a little bit, and then I got shipped over to the medium, and that's where I ended up meeting you. And I can't remember exactly how it went down or how we first met. Can you? Do you remember how we first met? Well... I remember that uh I seen yeah you was quite a quite full of yourself type of guy but very approachable, kind of friendly and so I kinda sat back because I'm not the type of person who just approaches people who I don't know. And so I uh you know, kinda 
seen you and I seen that you were into music and I don't remember exactly what the first initial meeting was, but I know that we got together and, and uh we had something in common that we, we wrote music. And so, you know, you you were singing and and uh playing the guitar at that point. However you you were just basic on the guitar and I remember I remember you got yourself a guitar and you started playing no, all the I, time. Yeah. No, no, I remember and then, exactly now. Wait a minute, I was singing my song that I wrote a cappella. I didn't have a guitar yet. Do you remember what was his name? Uh well we you know You have sixty yeah, seconds remaining. Well call it here it is. And I would like you to come back for part two and we can hear about the rest of the story and how things transpired from there. So we will bring you back on again, and we will conclude and figure out the rest of the story. Or maybe there will even be a part three. Who knows? But thank you for joining us on The Life of a Lifer. Thanks, Sarah. You have 30 seconds.